It's a joy to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Exodus. It's the second book in your Bible. It should be pretty easy to find. Exodus chapter 17 is where we will be this morning. As you're turning there, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer before we... Father, we do thank you that you are the God among all the earth. Lord, we do want to magnify your name because you are worthy of our praise. And Lord, we, you're worthy of our praise. For You walk with us. You lead us. You're with us in every step of our life, teaching us and instructing us as your great shepherd. Lord, we, even now, we want to ask that you would continue to be our shepherd, to walk with us through this passage, to instruct us through your word. Lord, that we might grow and be shaped to the image of your son. Lord, we ask now that as we focus our attention, you would do just that. Guard our time, Lord. Help us to focus on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope you got to Exodus chapter 17. I do want to encourage you to put your eyes on the text, please, so that you can follow along and go in between two, two mountaintop moments in redemptive history. The first, we might call it mountain peak, included Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt, which really took the first 15 chapters of the book to unpack. The second peak, which is really still out in front of us through 40, when God will solidify His people as He's going to say His treasured possession through whom He's going to give His law. He's going to enter into a very specific relationship with them. And He's going to institute official worship through the tabernacle system. But providentially, the pathway between these two mountains passes through the wilderness. And while none of us enjoy the wilderness, the wilderness proves to be productive for the people of God. It provided the people, as we saw last week, the opportunity to, to learn to, to trust in the perfection of God's provision and to see the, the beauty of His person. They received The people received manna from heaven. They received water which gushed from it. While last week we reflected upon, I ask you to reflect upon your individual wilderness moments in life, this morning we must reflect corporately. You see, because of His provision and the beauty of His person, which we saw last week, is meant really to form and fit the people into a particular community through whom He desires to make His glory known in the world. So here's my main idea this morning. I'm kind of building on last week's idea in these two sections in the wilderness, and it's this. That through the wilderness, God faithfully forms us into a community that relies upon His power, that proclaims His name, and cooperates in His mission. So through the wilderness, God is faithful to form us, to fit us, to make us, into a community. 
that's going to rely upon His power has to proclaim His name. And that corporately shares, participates together in His mission. Now again, this, this week we have two chapters, so I'm not going to read the, the, the text from the jump. I'm going to walk through through 16. We pick up in verse 8. We went to verse 7 last week. will be that as the people of God, we must rely upon the power of God. As the people of God, we must rely upon the power of God. I need to give you guys more time. I see everybody writing and looking down. I can slow down. My wife tells me to slow down a lot. So as the people of God, we rely upon the power of God. Now, the threat to Israel's existence thus far after they've left Egypt has come from, last week it came from within their own camp. It was their unbelieving, rebellious hearts expressed through their grumbling and complaining. But this morning they're going to face an external threat. But the reality is no matter the enemy for the people of God, we have to learn to rely upon his power, the power of God. So verse 8, we see here then Amalek. Now Amalek or Melek was a descendant of Esau. And his followers were a desert people known as the Amalekites who really proved to, to plague the, the people of, of God uh, really throughout the rest of the Old Testament. King Saul, King David will both have to deal with the Amalekites. One author describes the Amalekites as an early nomadic people that lived partly by attacking other population groups and plundering their wealth. And they were the camel. And they used its swiftness effectively for surprise attacks. We got tanks and Humvees today. They had camels. But this seems to be really their tactic even in our text. The, the, the a surprise attack. You don't have to turn there you would see this event in our text in Exodus described, the retelling of it, and the Amalekites are described as attacking the people when they were weary, it says, and doing so from behind, meaning most likely that they attacked the women and the children as they were moving out of the, out of the desert. And the text very plainly says in Deuteronomy that they did not fear God. Instead of revering God and His people, the Amalekites saw them as a vulnerable and easy target of attack. So Moses provides a battle strategy in verse 9. Look at it. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us, choose for us men, and go out and fight with Amalek. Uh, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, I, I'm not sure how, how I would have felt about this had I been Joshua. Josh, Moses seems to say to Joshua, like, go get some guys. Stick. It's not really a stick, though, right? It's not exactly what he's doing. This is the staff of God. You heard me say it in the text. Signifying God's presence, God's promises, and God's power up so far, this, this far in the text. And through it, God's, God brought, through this staff, God brought judgment on Egypt through the plagues. But he also, at the same time, in, the, in a different way, but through the same acts, brought deliverance for his people by rescuing them from Egypt and by parting the Red Sea. So he caused, and he even caused, last week in our text, he caused soul-satisfying water. You remember, to rush from the, the rock when Moses struck the rock with this staff. So what follows here is a powerful scene marked by the people of God relying on 11. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. 
As long as Moses' arms remain raised with this staff in the air, the army of Israel prevailed. But when he got tired and he began to lower the staff, they started to, the Amalekites started to prevail. So Aaron and Hur come to Moses' aid in verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Now, Israel's role has been entirely passive in the narrative, in the story of redemption from slavery in Egypt up until this point. We saw they had some instructions they had to do last week. But their role literally was, God told them in the first 15 chapters, be silent and watch is what their role was, as I accomplish your redemption. But now they're required to take action. And while the act of the call of redemption never is, an act of obedience is always the call of the people of God. But faithful, active obedience relies upon the power of God. So while Joshua has assembled an army, and while they are wielding their sword on the battlefield below, their victory is actually dependent upon what takes place on the mountain with Moses. Very importantly, nowhere in this text do you read anything in terms of the size or the strategy of the Israelite army. Instead, all of the details are or all of the focus is fixed on Moses' intercession on this mountain. And intercession, I think, is the proper word here. Moses' hands, it says, are lifted, appealing to God's power. As, a, as, as kind of a confession that things are really out of my control. It's kind of like what, I don't know, maybe comes to mind for me is on a roller coaster. Put your hands up. Some of us might be getting challenged by somebody to do this, but ultimately we put our hands up saying, I'm out of control. This isn't out of my control. This harness that's holding me is the only thing. This battle is out of my control. We must rely upon the power of God. And the raising of hands to God is found throughout the Bible as a sign of dependent prayer. Exodus, even in Exodus, chapter 9, verse 27 through 29, Pharaoh asked Moses to pray for him. He did this multiple times. The text says in verse 29, as soon as Moses had gone out of the city, he says, I stretched out my hands to the Lord. Psalm 141.2 reads, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. In the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul speaking to the church says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So while this text doesn't, explicitly say Moses is praying, the scene is one of intercession, no doubt. Upon not the strength of Moses, not the, the, the battle strategy of Joshua, not the size of the army, but upon the power of the God that they serve. Verse 14, of Joshua, that I, may, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now there's a strong language here of judgment upon Amalek, which really plays out in the rest of the Old Testament. What I want us to see here is notice Moses here builds an altar to praise God for His great power in conquering their enemies. And he named it Yahweh Nisi. 
The Lord is my banner. Now this word banner was used most often in a military context. Often maybe we could say as a signal pole that the army or the unit orders. Moses is here declaring that the Lord, that Yahweh's great power is their rallying point. He is the one they must regroup and rally around. It's His great power they must rely upon. He is the one who fights their battles. I want us to be follow the narrative here. We're going next week to receive to the, to the mountain where they're going to receive the law of the Lord. But we've just left Egypt. And it's important we remember that redemption is God's work alone. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to hear that. God is the author of our salvation. Our salvation is not tied to nor dependent upon any of our works, any of our labor, any of our religious activity, any battle that we have to fight. Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. Jesus died the death we deserved for our sins on the cross. The gospel is the good news. It is the good news because God has accomplished all things necessary for our salvation in Christ. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Period. So to add anything to the gospel, is to lose the gospel. All Israel did upon leaving Egypt was believe, as we are called to as well. But now in light of their redemption, they are called, we are called to action. So though redemption is passive for us, the life of the redeemed demands action. For we too are in a battle. But our battle on this side of redemptive history is a bit different. Paul tells us, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We too are in a battle. And we too, like Joshua, must put on our gear. We too must wield the sword, the sword of the Spirit, as Paul tells us. But we must also know that our victory is not dependent upon us. But, on, but upon the, the one who died on victory in the Christian life is dependent upon God's great power in Christ, who Hebrews tells us forever lives to make intercession for His people. Our banner is Christ, brothers and sisters. He alone is our rallying point. We must learn to rely upon Him as we battle in this life together. So living as the people of God means learning to rely upon the power of God. And God uses the wilderness to teach us that lesson over and over again. And reliance has nothing to do with passivity. True reliance produces action. I love the way Paul tells it. One of my favorite two verses in the Bible. I text this to a few pastors in chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What is he saying? There's a battle. We labor. We strive. That's what he says next. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. As the people of God, we are to labor together. We are to in serving and loving one another and sharing the gospel. 
Late nights, early mornings is the life of the Christian. But if we are to see God do anything beyond the work of man in us and through us, we must rely upon His power at work in us. We toil, we struggle with all His energy. He powerfully works in us. As the people of God, we rely upon the power of God. But secondly, as the people of God, we are called to declare the glory of God. And we pick up here in chapter 18. So in chapter 18, the focus of this narrative, it shifts to Moses' father-in-law. And it's an interesting scene because Jethro, is a, he's not an Israelite. In fact, he's a Midianite. And Midianites were closely... Were, were, what's truly amazing is the powerful confession... That's going to come from the lips of Jethro. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel's people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zephora, Moses' wife, and after he had sent her home along with her two sons, the name of the one was Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the other, and the name of the other, Elisha, he, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now, the, the text doesn't tell us. We're left with a lot of questions here. Like when and why and how. When did this happen that Moses' wife and his children were separated from him? We don't know. Seems plausible to believe that upon when he left Midian, he was in the desert earlier, that when he left Midian with God's orders to go f- confront Pharaoh, Moses probably arranged for his father-in-law to care for his children and his wife. We don't really know. What we do know is that the word, that word had spread about what had happened in Egypt, concerning all that God had done to Egypt and to his people. Je- Jethro's heard about this. And now Moses reconnects with his wife and his boys, named Gershom, Sojourner. The the meaning of the name sounds a lot better than the name. And Elisha, God is my help, which describes the Exodus encounter completely, right? But now in verses 6 and 7, this reunion takes place. It's pretty fascinating. The only thing missing is some ribs and potato salad, it seems like. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming To you with your wife and two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. We see a a warm and respectable... He gets right to the heart of the matter. Verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So what is Moses doing here? Moses is testifying to the mighty works of God. Moses is proclaiming the glory of God. He tells them of all the hardships of slavery in Egypt, but he don't leave it there. Then he recounts the wonders of God's deliverance on their behalf. There's much we can say here, thinking about Moses, as we think about family members that we pray for that don't know the Lord. Moses is clear. He's clear. There's a before, hardship, trial, troubles. There's the work of God. Moses made sure the mighty acts, the mighty works of God was central to this retelling. 
But we should also take note of how quick Moses was to speak of the Lord. Moses didn't waste any time. He deliberately, quickly grabbed Jethro. Jethro knew something that had happened. He quickly was there to fill in the details and describe to him all of the wonders that God had accomplished. God's deliverance had so reoriented and reshaped Moses' love but speak of it. It provides him really, we're going to see this with Moses, the Exodus account provides Moses a new worldview, a new way of thinking and understanding all things. Makes me think of Paul's words in Acts 20, 24. Speaking of his life, he said, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. How does he finish it? To testify to the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus, of God. So by recounting the good news here, Moses is trying, because it works. Verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. And that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Now whether Jethro is converted right here. Or whether he already has been converted and knows the Lord. we We can't be sure. But his confession testifies to genuine faith in the Lord and it leads to true worship according to Israelite custom. Verse 12, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrificed to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is really amazing here. We have a, a Midianite priest bringing a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, clearly communicating his sin before the holiness and the majesty of Yahweh, which then allows him to partake in really a a covenant type of meal, a significant meal with the elders of Israel, demonstrating his solidarity with the people of God. Jethro is no longer a Midianite priest. He worships Yahweh. He is part of the people of God. And he, he is that. The last verse of chapter 18 tells us that. But he's going to return home with a newfounded faith in Yahweh, the God of the one who delivers his people. Now, let's be careful. Let's not disconnect this story from the theme of Exodus. So the theme of Exodus, as I've said, as we're approaching this book, is the God who is making his name known. And this cannot great I am in chapter 3. And then he filled this divine designation with content throughout the Exodus event. You guys remember when we read through the plagues. No less than seven times throughout the plagues, we read, of, we read the Lord's declaration Himself. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. And by this all the families of the earth shall know that I am Yahweh. This is His repeated refrain. So look at Jethro's confession here. Now I know... That the Lord is greater than all gods. This testifies to God's great purpose in the book of Exodus going forward. It does in the entirety of the Bible. Psalm 96 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. I remind you, church, That the singular purpose of our existence as a body flows directly from this theme in Exodus.
We have no other reason to exist than to make the name of the Lord known. This is our mission statement at the Hill. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. Our existence as the people of God is tied to our declaration of the glory of God. We are to proclaim, announce, declare the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, I'll just be personal. Much of my apprehension, much of my, let's use the word fear, in often evangelism, stems from me not referred to, to take part in as the people of God. God Himself, the Creator and Sustainer of all things, desires for the beauty and the majesty and the glory of His person to go forth to all the nations. And He chooses us as the means to make it known. If that doesn't humble us, encourage us, and focus us to who we are as the people of God, I don't know what will. As the people of God, we are to declare the glory of God. And we know the glory of God has been perfectly revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus. And with such a high calling, then it's imperative we give careful attention concerning who we are, and how we exist together as the church. And this brings us to our last point here with Jethro. Probably the most. So verse 3 is that as the people of God, we cooperate in the work of God. So this forming of God's people, He's forming them to rely upon His power. He's forming them to be a people who proclaim His name. And now He's forming them to cooperate, to work together in his mission. And this continues in these final verses of chapter 18 where this Jethro, this new convert, this man who just confessed Yahweh is now going to provide God's chosen leader over his people some key instructions regarding leadership. Verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, Moses' prior leadership position of overseeing sheep, it had afforded him many valuable insights on how to shepherd God's people. We've talked about that going this far. But guess what? Delegation wasn't one. Sheep don't respond well to delegation. So after Jethro observes Moses' leadership philosophy and sees just how unsustainable it is, he tells Moses, bro, you can't do this. This is too much for you. And then he provides, and yet hard for each of us to hear advice in the Bible. The end of verse 18. Look at it again. You are not able to do it alone. 
Some of you need to hear that. You are not able to do it alone. God lays out, when He creates the world, He says over and over again, it is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. Chapter 2, verse 18. He says, the first thing is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. God created you to depend upon Him first and foremost. And until we figure that out, here's the reality. When we go through a wilderness experience, we go through a difficult time in our life, what's the first thing we want to do? What's that? Be alone. Isolate ourselves. Run away. And we go, we, we run against the very fabric of creation and we run against the very purpose of redemption. God created us for community and God has redeemed us. But yet we struggle with that. I struggle with that. We want to go at things alone. And Jethro stands back and looks at Moses and he said, man, you can't do this alone. You're not able to do life, especially the Christian life alone. You need other people in your life. And the ministry of the body of Christ cannot rest on a single person or even a few people. So what's the solution? Verse 19. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk. And all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. And let them judge the people at all they shall bring to you. But any small matters, they shall de- decide themselves. So it will be easier for you. And they will bear the burden with you. You see that? If you do this, God will direct you. And, and you will be able to endure. And listen to what it says here. And all this people also will go to their place with peace. Jethro instructs Moses on how to share the work of ministry. Moses is to delegate so that the people, it says, will bear the burden with him of ministry. But healthy delegation only happens when the one delegating rightly understands their role in the work. Right? If you don't know your role in the work, You can't rightfully delegate. So Moses' role is spelled out very clearly in verse 19. Moses is to represent the people, their issues to them, to God. And then he's supposed to take the statues and the laws to the people and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moses' role is essentially... Prayer and the ministry of the Word. Literally, take the people's request to God and instruct them from the Word as they're going to receive the law very soon and teach them how to actually live this out as a community of faith. Taking the people's request to God, taking the, the Word to the people, that they might live in covenant faithfulness to God. But Moses' delegation comes with specific instructions, right? Don't just delegate any, to, to anybody. Verse 21, Moses says, he's to find able men. Men capable of serving in this way. Like they need to know what they're doing. And they are to come from 
They must fear God. In other words, they, must, they, they are to serve realizing whatever they are doing is to be done unto the Lord, not themselves. They must be trustworthy. Moses should be able to count on them. The people should be able to count on them. And, and they must be able to trust their motive for service. They should hate a bribe. Meaning they should, not, they should be impartial, honest, and not in it for financial gain or for elevating themselves or a place of position and power. And notice he says, assign men over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and even tens. What's he saying there? He said, based upon, assign them based upon their capability, the size of their authority. Faithfulness is the stewardship of what God has entrusted them with. Some are gifted to handle a thousand, but some are ten. But that's okay. Be faithful with that. Verse 24, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that out of all Israel, and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. In hard cases they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Now why is this important here? How are these, and this is really just some very practical instruction on how to do life together. But how do these practical instructions Prepares left one mountaintop of redemption. They're headed towards the receiving of the law, the Sinai covenant. How does this prepare them? Well, in just a few verses, look down. I want you to look down into chapter 19, verse 4. Just a few verses. God is going to, as I said, consecrate Israel as his special people. Look at it. Verse 19, chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So he, he basically just outlines for them what he's just done for them. Indeed, obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So remember our theme in Exodus. God is making Himself known. He's redeemed a people to make them into a community of people through whom He's going to make His name known. So God intends to set Israel apart as His treasured possession through whom He will make His name known among all the earth. They are to serve as a kingdom of priests and a holy Nation set apart. And they're to do that by living in covenant center of this. And we're going to see that in the next two weeks. We're going to receive the Ten Commandments and then we're going to receive a, a lot of laws and instruction about how to live out those Ten Commandments as the people of God in the midst of a world around them. So Jethro, plurality of qualified leaders, is to provide the structure which will enable the people to live in faithfulness to their calling. They must be instructed on how to live in light of the law. Now, much could be said here, and it should be said here, about the, the nature and necessity of qualified leadership in the church. Very similar language, if you want to read it later in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy and Titus, in terms of the foundation of a plurality of elders shepherding the body even can be seen here. But look, for the sake of time in our study, I, I'm not going to go there specifically. I want to zoom back a bit, a bit more generally. 
And I want to connect two dots for us. We typically don't connect as Christians in the Christian life. All right? And the first one is this. The, the nature and structure of the church. Okay, a, big, a big fancy word for that would be ecclesiology. And then the mission of the church. You might say missiology. So the nature and structure of the church and the mission of the church. Okay, we've already discussed the mission of the church. God has entrusted us with the life-changing message of the gospel. We're to proclaim the, the message of the gospel to all nations. But the message of the gospel we speak is to manifest itself in a specific way of life in the gospel. And, and as the people of God, we are to live a specific way as specific people for a specific purpose. That is our calling as it was Israel. So when we think about the nature and structure of the church, whether we're talking about the offices of elder or deacon, whether we're talking about, in our context, think about community groups and community group leaders, or even volunteers who are serving in Hill City Kids right now. We're talking about, when we talk about these things, we're not merely talking about just practical operations of the church. Jethro's not in Moses' conversation, is not merely just about practical realities of how to structure themselves. What's being talked about is a stewardship issue. Stewardship of their role as God's redemptive people. And for us, it's a stewardship issue of the gospel. We're talking about our call to cooperate in the mission of the church by the way we do life together as a body. So, there's... We have been entrusted the life-changing message of the gospel. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to hear, the gospel has saved our lives. I was a sinner, a reckless rebel before God, due His wrath and His judgment because of my sin, and God supernaturally rescued me by the message of His Son. And He's called me out of darkness into His life. And He's called me into a family of believers here at the Hill. My particular role now, I'm a church member, but I'm also a pastor. But He's called us into a people. But He's not just saved us, it's a message that saved us. It's a stewardship question for us. We, are, we talk about our, our call to cooperate in the mission of the church we're talking about the way we do life together. God has entrusted us the gospel. So we are to live a specific way as God's specific people for His specific purpose of making Him known in the world. Applying this text, we just read Exodus 19.4 was the text that I opened up the service with. Peter says, listen to the language. Speaking to us today as the church, but you are a chosen race you are a royal priesthood you are a, a holy nation you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light so church we are God's chosen people and we say that not because of anything about us we're God's chosen people actually in spite of us because of our rebellion and sin God rescued us we're a people of God's possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of who He is and what He's done in the gospel. So here's the application for you. There's nothing mundane about the church of Jesus Christ. 
Nothing. Zero. Cleaning a toilet, being a greeter, other brothers and sisters on Sunday morning, welcome each other in the fellowship, partaking of the Lord's Supper, clapping when we, when we baptize someone as a new believer. There's nothing mundane about the life of the church. There is no greater institution that you can be a part of than the church of Jesus Christ because He has entrusted us with the life-changing message of the gospel. So we are to cooperate together in the life of the church for the advancement of God's great No insignificant service in the body of Christ. We cooperate together. So as we bring the sermon full circle, even from last week, God rescued His people the moment they set their feet on this side of redemption, He led them to the wilderness. And the text says, He tested them. And He tested them to train them and instruct them to prepare Him for what lied ahead, that they would be His people. He wanted them to see. He tested them by having them struggle with the two most essential things you and I in our life. Some of you are probably thinking about them right now. To demonstrate to Him that He is our perfect provider. He doesn't provide us what we want, all of our desires. He provides what we need. He's our perfect provision. He sent manna from heaven. And then He had water rush from a rock. And in all of that, He was showing them through His provision that is perfect that they would see the beauty of His person. But now this week, He takes all of that and He's now forming His people so that they will understand, look, you're not just a bunch of scattered people that left Egypt. No, I have a corporate purpose for you in the world. And I'm going to form you and fit you into a people that I want to make my name known to. He does that by teaching them to rely upon His power as He teaches us. We must do battle in the Christian life, but we do so in reliance to His power. We must proclaim His great name, not our name, not the name of the Hill Church. For what? The name of Christ. And we cooperate together because of the significance of the gospel that He's given us. So the Christian life is characterized by many mountaintop moments. It is. Amen to that. But the pathway between each of these is often faithful to use the wilderness to form us into His people whom He desires for us to make His glory known. We do battle as His people. We do so in reliance upon His power and the mighty works within Him. And we proclaim the glory of His great name to the person of His Son. In light of what we have been entrusted, we cooperate in the mission that He's given us. We order ourselves and structure ourselves so that we might live out the gospel in this world. So I want to encourage you, church, if you're a member of this church, if you're a visitor of this church, if you've been here for a while, there's nothing mundane about what we do because there's nothing mundane about Jesus. He's the author of it all. He's the purpose of it all. He's the point in the, in the message. And we proclaim Him. So through the wilderness, God faithfully forms us into a community that relies upon His power, proclaims His name, and cooperates in His mission. Let's pray. God, we love You. We love You because You first loved us. And Lord, we look at a text like this. We, Lord, we know that the power necessary for the Christian life comes not from our strategies and plans the hill of Calvary. 
that you would take upon yourself that which we deserve death for, our sin, our rebellion, our unrighteousness, our transgression, our iniquities, that, that you, the sinless Son of God, would come and bear those upon yourself as our substitute. And that you would rise again, demonstrating that everything you said, everything you did was true. That you have the power to set us free. And Lord, by faith, you offer us forgiveness and a new life in you. To open our eyes, we thank you that you saw fit, like Jethro, that Moses would proclaim you. Someone proclaimed the gospel to us, Lord. We thank you for that. But Lord, let us be a good ambassador, a good steward of what you've given us. That even as we think about who we are as the Hill Church, Lord, help us not forget the point is Jesus. The point is the gospel. And might we think about everything that we do, the significance of our relationships together. You, we, you call us not to live alone. You call us to live in faithfulness with you through your Son, first and foremost. But through the people of your Son. So Lord, fit us, form us as the Hill Church into a community that relies upon your power, proclaims your name, and cooperates together to take part in your mission. We love you, Jesus. Amen.